that on the back. I would love to do that. Uh, it's what uh, I was brought up to do, and I've always done it. But uh, uh, my doctors tell me that I have to be more careful than that for a little while longer. I haven't been completely cleared from the procedures that I've been through, so uh, I don't mean to be rude. I just have to follow the doctor's instructions, I guess. Uh, they've worked very well so far, so I don't see any reason to start uh, disobeying now. But I do thank Brother Paul and Brother Neil for asking me and giving me this opportunity. And uh, I do agree with him that it's a dangerous thing to tell someone like me that, you know, just take as long as you want. Uh, it's no problem. Uh, we'll be here. So I just want to encourage you now to just sit back and relax and, you know, we'll be here for a while. <laughs> but uh, I do want to thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony with you. It's been a while since I've done this. And when you go back and do it again, you begin to see just how much God uh, is doing and has done and will continue to do in your life if, uh, if you pay attention. And that's uh, where we mess up sometimes is we're not paying attention. Uh, we just don't uh, focus on uh, the blessings that God gives us as much as we need to. But I want to say to you that I am standing here before you today as a walking, talking, physical embodiment of God's handiwork. Uh, I could have just as easily not been here today uh, because I was very near to that date uh, in my life that we all must face at some point out in the future. But I am a true miracle in the flesh, and I'm here to make sure that God gets the praise and the glory for all of these events that I will talk about today. So the overarching theme of what I'm going to say today would be that God is faithful. God is faithful. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind and be thinking about that because that's what I want to get across to you today. Um, I know that sometimes in our world that it may appear that... Uh, God has forgotten about us uh, with some of the things that are going on, but I'm here to tell you that he's never, never far away and that he's always actively involved if we would just pay attention. And I also want to thank all of you as a church people, individually and collectively, for all of the prayers and words of encouragement, pats on the back, uh, the concern, cards, phone calls during the last three years of my life when I was going through this difficult time. You lifted me up in so many ways and in so many times. And uh, prayer, most importantly, is powerful and mighty in ways that you could not imagine. As I was laying in hospital beds and having procedures done and things to try to keep me alive, uh, I felt prayed for. I felt encouraged. I knew that there were people that were intentionally listing my name in their prayer request and in their quiet time. And uh, that makes all the difference in the world. 
for people is to know that they are prayed for and that they are encouraged. So I thank you as a church and individually for having the willingness and the discipline to take somebody like me on and to pray for me for as long as it took for me to be delivered. If you would, uh, if you have your Bibles with you today, I would like for you to uh, uh, keep it out because we will be going to different places in the Scripture that I would refer you to. Or if you're taking notes, maybe just write down the uh, Scriptures and you can read them on your own time at home. And the first one that I would like to share with you is James chapter 5. Okay, if you'll stand in honor of God's Word then. James chapter 5 and verse 16, part B. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I knew that people like Landmark Baptist Church and their congregants to be righteous people and to fervently be praying for me. So I thank you for that. And it's a credit to Brother Paul's leadership and to you as Christians to have that willingness and discipline to be involved in other people's lives, even though physically you may not be where they are. Uh, it's, a, it's with a great deal of thanks that I give you that. Okay, you may be seated. I want to start, as they say, at the beginning. <laughs> I was raised by a godly family. And let me make it clear to you that there's no more important job that you will ever have if you marry and your union is blessed with children, there's no more important job. It is a job with eternal consequences, and you must take it seriously. To be raised by two godly parents and to have two godly sisters in my life was a big, big thing uh, as I was being raised up. Um, in 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins before God, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And that is fact. That is the reality. And even though after that moment of salvation, if we were to stray, stumble, or fall, He is still faithful to forgive us of our sins. And um, going to Deuteronomy in the book of Scripture... If you'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we're going to be reading verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And that's what a saved person does. You love the Lord and you do everything that you can to keep His commandments and to worship Him 
in spirit and in truth. And because of that, salvation comes. God is faithful. Brother Milton was the pastor at First Baptist Church as I was growing up. Many of you might have known him. And uh, we had been in revival, and you know how you had revival back then. It's not like you have revival today. It was you met at 7 in the morning for uh, devotional thought and breakfast. Kids went to school. Parents went to work at about 7.30. And then you met again at 7 o'clock that night for the regular revival service, and you did that for five days. It was, uh, well, six days, Sunday through Friday, every time. Um, And we had been involved in a revival like that, and I believe it was on Thursday. Brother Milton came by my house. I had been struggling with this decision uh, as an 8-year-old for... About a month, me and some of my friends had been talking about it and uh, whether we could make the decision at that age or not. I felt that I really needed to. Don't know how much trouble you can get into as an eight-year-old, but I felt like that I certainly needed to be clean and I needed to be whole. And he used a chair as an example of what faith was. He says, when you come into a room, you sit down in that chair, and what do you have? And as an eight-year-old, I didn't put two and two together. He said, you have faith that that chair is going to hold you up. And you continue to have faith in every chair that you sit in until one doesn't hold you up. Then you don't have faith. Uh, And that stuck with me, has stuck with me my entire life. So, that Sunday night, I walked the aisle and I took Brother Milton's hand and I was saved. And I know that I was saved because I walked out of that church after my baptism and I felt as clean and whole as a person could. I felt like that there was definitely a line of demarcation for what had gone before, which certainly was not evil, but and what would go on after that. And uh, I just, from that moment on, I have felt the presence of God and the relationship with Jesus in my life throughout. And uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be 63, so that's a while. It's been a while. Uh, The first time, though, that I uh, had some type of ailment, which you will see as a common thread that runs through this, Uh, was when I was four. I was diagnosed with asthma. Um, And God immediately began to put the right doctors and the right places in my life for this to be dealt with. And I felt that way. Dr. Mike Whittle was the doctor here at the time, over where Dr. Neely's office is now. You may have remembered uh, Dr. Whittle. He had to leave us because he was drafted into the Vietnam War and he served, I think, two two tours of duty over there as a uh, medical person. But anyway, Dr. Whittle was my doctor and he 
We give me shots of adrenaline and allergy shots once a week. Every Friday I would have to leave school, go down there, have my allergy shot so that I could breathe. And understand, lots of people have asthma today, and people think that it's managed pretty easy. You know, you get you a, uh, one of those inhalers or something, and you'll be fine. Well, that uh, wasn't true back then because you're talking about the early 60s. 62 and asthma was a new thing and many people were dying from it uh, they didn't really know exactly how to treat it uh, they were working on things uh, but um, that's how Dr. Whittle treated and one night in my life stuck out Dr. Whittle I was having a severe asthma attack did not know if I would survive the night I couldn't breathe I was <gasps> and that was all I could do <coughs> excuse me I couldn't get air in I couldn't get air out it was just that way Dr. Whittle came after he finished his rounds at the hospital and he stayed with me all night and he gave me adrenaline shots and other medicine every time that I could have them all night just for me to make it through sat all night long at my house in my room with me and my mother and father Got up the next morning, ate breakfast with Mama and Daddy, and then went to his office to go to work. The right doctor, a man that believed in God and lived and served for God. He did as much for me as he thought he could, then he referred me to a man named Dr. Anderson at Talmadge Memorial Hospital in Augusta. They had this big machine and you could purchase one, but you can imagine what the cost was, and we couldn't afford one. Um, it would pump the medicine down into your lungs. You put a mouthpiece on, and it would pump the medicine down into your lungs so that your lungs would stay open and breathing longer for longer periods of time. Uh, it was the cutting edge of the treatment at that time. We couldn't afford one, so again, a doctor who believes in God and who serves God, him and a couple of his buddies got together and they put together this thing that we called the bicycle pump. It was a bicycle pump with a tube that come out of where the air comes out and you took a glass nebulizer and put it on the top and my mama or daddy, whichever one was there at the time, would mix the medicine the way that they told them to and put it in the nebulizer and somebody would sit there while I sat in a chair and would pump, and I would breathe the medicine down into my lungs, and that's when I started getting better. So you see, God can heal miraculously. I mean, he could do it in an instant. But many times, he brings other people into your lives and bring relationships into your lives for your benefit and to demonstrate his active participation in your life so that you were taken care of. And me, my mama and daddy, my two sisters, we would all take turns at the bicycle pump. And I want to tell you that God finished the job. Since the age of 25, I have not had to take any medication, any shots, any treatments for asthma. Gone completely. So God deserves the praise and the glory for that. 
Uh, turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 and verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's what I was thinking. This is little old Randy in a little town like Lyons in Toombs County. And God has created the entire universe. What am I to him? Why should he take the time to see that I was taken care of? But that's the beauty and the magnificence of God is that he does consider us individually as well as collectively. And he takes care of us on a daily basis. God kept the right doctors in my life, and according to his plan and according to his timing, I was cured of asthma. Psalms 115 and verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. Now, he's talking specifically about the house of Israel and the house of Aaron. But he says in verse 13, He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Well, I was small. <laughs> I wasn't very significant, I didn't think. But then I got the sense of God being present in my life. And I began to feel that I was, at some level, significant. And it made me whole. The second time that God demonstrated His love for me and His faithfulness was with my heart. In 2009... We had just finished football season over at the middle school, and we had played in the championship game. We came back, and uh, I had an episode right before Christmas break. Uh, I had gone to get my class and bring them back, uh, as was the procedure. And when I got back into the gym, Coach Mallory, my uh, partner in the gym he noticed that I was sweating profusely he said that my face was swollen and he said I just didn't look right I couldn't hardly breathe so I went to the nurse there and the nurse sent me directly to the doctor and y'all know who the nurse was Miss Salter and she knew that I wasn't right. My blood pressure was through the roof. So I went. Dustin Carter put me on a... First of all, they laid me down for a while, and I rested. Then he put me on a stress test, which I failed miserably. So he arranged for me to go to Savannah the next morning. I went to Savannah, and a man named Dr. Burgess, who prayed over me and who was a Christian and still is to this day. I see him every six months. But um, 
he took a look at me, didn't put a stethoscope to my chest, didn't do anything, took a look at me. He says, you and your wife can go downstairs and eat at the cafeteria. He says, come back up about 1.30. I'll have a room for you. You're going to have open heart surgery tomorrow. I was amazed. Come to find out, he was very intuitive and very well-versed in medicine because Dr. Hyderi, another Christian man, he came in and he was going to do the surgery. Said to have the greatest hands of a heart surgeon in the entire southeastern United States. Nobody was better. I can attest to the fact that nobody was better because when he opened my chest up, I had to wait because there was an emergency that came in in front of me. Somebody had been stabbed in the heart, so he had to take that one. Didn't want to do more than one a day because it's a seven-hour surgery and very meticulous. You can imagine working with a heart. So um, I got put off. So on New Year's Day of January 10th, I ended up laid open. Uh, and when, once he got inside the heart, he found two arteries that were blocked 99% and one that was blocked 95%. And after the surgery, uh, when I got back into a room after the uh, cardiac ICU, he came to check me, and he told me, he says, you were going to have what we call the Widowmaker. He said, I, you never would have survived it if that heart attack had happened. So I was just that far from not being here. But again, God took care of the situation. And from Dustin Carter to Dr. Barber to Dr. Burgess to Dr. Hyderi, God had his hand over my heart the entire time. And he knew that the right people and the right place was there orchestrating all events to give me a heart. And according to Dr. Burgess today, who I saw just a few weeks ago, my heart is stronger than ever. It's like I've never had a problem. Uh, he did such a magnificent job. So God is faithful. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll go down to verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful, a high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. I had put myself in the position of having a bad heart through bad diet, not enough exercise, not enough rest, burning the candle at both ends. That was my responsibility. But Jesus 
is a high priest that knows how we feel. He knew what I was feeling. He knew what my body was doing to itself. And he saved me from it and saved me from myself. God is faithful. You're never out of his thoughts. You're never out of his actions. Either as an individual or as a church. And the last thing that I had to go through was the struggle that I just went through. It was a three-year struggle. Uh, in 2016, I retired from the education field after having what I believe to be a very good career, had met tremendous people, worked with, taught, uh, spent time with young people, adults, everything that had huge impacts on my life and that I hope in some small way I might have had an impact on their life along the way. But I consider it to be a good career. Uh, but because of the heart situation, I was required to have blood work done every six months and sent in. So uh, I was doing that faithfully. And in the fall of two, six, uh, 2016, my blood work revealed that my liver numbers were all out of whack. Uh, and again, it was Dustin Carter who recommended that I go to a specialist, go see a doctor that specialized in the liver. That put me in contact with Dr. Christian in Dublin in March of 2017. And he diagnosed me as having NASH, non-alcoholic steatophatis, NASH. Uh, I had not had this problem because of drinking, but I had this problem, uh, it just comes, it happens to some people. Uh, and he referred me to Dr. Enrique Martinez, who was a liver specialist at the Atlanta Gastroenterology Department at Emory Midtown in Atlanta. Dr. Christian said, I want to get your foot in the door because somewhere in the future you're probably going to need a liver transplant, and the sooner you have an opportunity to get on the list, the better. So I went to see Dr. Martinez in May of 2017, and Dr. Martinez described to me the four horsemen of liver disease, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One was esophageal varices, holes in your esophagus that rupture and bleed, and I was told that I couldn't be transferred from Vidalia to Dublin because I wouldn't survive the ride. I would bleed to death before I could get there. So I certainly couldn't go from Dublin to Atlanta in time. So they did a process called an EDG, and they ran this thing down in through my esophagus and everything, and they banded all of these varices, put a rubber band around them, and what happens, it stops the bleeding, and eventually the rubber band just sloughs off, and you have scar tissue there so that you don't bleed anymore. So I went through that first. That was the first horse of the apocalypse. The second one was encephalopathy. Your body, or the liver, 
along with the spleen, transfers or uh, gets out of your body all of the uh, bad stuff that's in your blood. It filters your blood, and um, ammonia is one of the things that's in your blood, and it's not good for you. It's supposed to be filtered out. My liver was so sick at the time, uh, I had lost 40% of the function already, and uh, it was not filtering. So the ammonia would build up in my body until through the bloodstream it would get to my brain, and once it got to my brain, I had no balance, uh, I had no ability to walk, and I could not communicate. Uh, I spoke gibberish. In my mind, I knew what I was trying to say, but when it came out here, nobody could understand what I wanted. Nobody could understand what I was trying to say. And it got worse each time, uh, more prevalent. So I went through the second one. The third one was fluid buildup. And if any of y'all saw the pictures that my wife Beth put on uh, uh, Facebook to invite people to come today, you saw how big I was right the day that I got my liver. Uh, I was weighing 199 pounds, and a lot of it was fluid. And you know a person as short as I am does not need to weigh 199 pounds uh, for any reason. But... Uh, Fluid build up, and I would go back and forth to the hospital for usually three days, and they would go through a procedure of drawing fluid off of my abdomen. Liters at the time, multiple liters at the time. You would sit there with that needle in your gut and just watch bottles fill up, and they would unhook and take hook another one and unhook and hook another one and. It was an amazing thing, and uh, within two or three weeks, it would be back to the same situation. Uh, and then the fourth one was the liver cancer. And thankful to God and to the doctors that he put in my life, after they, I had the liver transplant, they autopsied your old liver, and I did have liver cancer. It was in the beginning stages, but had I not had a liver transplant, the cancer would have been it. It would have been the final thing. Um, that was the four, part, four parts of horses of the apocalypse. So in September of 2018, Dr. Martinez referred me to the liver transplant team at Emory. And in October, I went to be assessed, what they call an assessment. I had 16 vials of blood drawn from my veins, and I had uh, every test you could imagine from head to toe, CAT scans, MRIs, X-rays, anything that you could imagine. And uh, they checked me out, and all that was done in November. And the main reason was to see if I could even survive a major surgery like a liver transplant. And they kept telling me, what you're going to go through is the most major surgery that you can have, even more than heart or kidneys. It says you're going to be on the operating table for a minimum of eight hours. 
and the number of systems that are involved that are going to have to be worked on, you are going to be amazed at how many it is. Okay? So, it was not a, a uh, you know, like going and getting a couple of stitches. It was major surgery. In December of 2018, I was put on the transplant list. Being on the transplant list is a waiting process because you wouldn't think this, but to get a liver, you have to get sicker to get better. That's what they always told me. You have to get so sick that you can't make it. Then you get a liver. It was taken... The sickness is measured by what they call a MELD score, M-E-L-D, MELD scores, from tests and blood work that they do, and you come up with a number, some kind of algorithm. One doctor tried to explain it to me, and no, <laughs> not a clue, uh, but it's some type of algorithm, and um, what MELD stands for is model for end-stage liver disease. So that tells you right there, end-stage means that you're right there. You're right there. Uh, in November of 2018, my male score was 15. They don't even start considering you until your male, star, male score gets to 28. Uh, 30 and up, they're actively involved hunting you a liver down because you're getting there. If you get to 40, you're gone. There's nothing they can do for you. So, it was at 15, and it stayed that way for the next two years. I would go into the hospital draw fluid, more blood work, more tests, everything, and it, it, would, it would go between 15 and 19, 15 and 22, but never to the range where I was going to get a liver. Now, at Emory, the average score for them to give someone a liver is 30. That's their average. Uh, but my score stayed at 19, like I said, 15 to 22, for a very long time. On February the 26th of 2020, I went for an MRI and a doctor appointment. My male score had jumped to 28. So now I was up there. I was admitted to the hospital. They took more fluid off. I was sent home on March the 1st. Uh, a couple of days after that, I began running a fever and had to go back to the hospital on March the 10th. And on March the 14th, life began again for me because I had finally reached the mark. My male score had made it to 33. I was told that I was probably down to my last five days if I would make it that long. Uh, my wife can tell you I was yellow from head to toe even in my eyes 
I was swollen, difficulty breathing. I was right there at the door. And thank God for another Christian in my life, a donor. A donor, don't know if it's a he or she, age, anything. All I was told was that it was a person that was younger than me. They don't tell you things like that. They let you contact the family through a letter that you send through the hospital. I've written them, I've thanked them, I've blessed them, I've prayed for them. It's up to them to respond. Up to this point, I have not received a response. Different people handled grief different ways, and their family is, has not reached the point yet to where they feel like they want to be in contact with me. I hope one day they will. But because of their son or daughter who was willing to be an organ donor, I get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance after asthma, a heart, and now a liver. I get a fourth chance. And salvation, being saved by my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And everything that I've talked to you about today that is my life and my testimony is thanks to God and God's people. Brother Milton, Brother Paul, doctors who are Christians. And I had doctors and nurses at Emory that would come into my room and they would pray with me. Not just for me, but pray with me. You really feel good when you know someone that's about to split you open and lay you open. I cut up with my wife and said it was like I was filleted like a fish. And they're going to have your entire life in their hands to know that they believe in God. It means everything in the world. And they pray for you. Dr. Hyderi did that with my, before my heart surgery. I told you I, was, I had heart surgery on New Year's Day. So New Year's Eve, I was laying there wondering if I was going to survive New Year's Day. Dr. Hyderi came in. This was late at night. He was on his way home after he had done his rounds. He said, do you have any questions for me before tomorrow? I said, no, I just have one request. He said, what's that? I said, I know it's New Year's Eve. I said, but I want you to go home tonight and get you a shower and go straight to bed. I don't want you to be at any parties. I don't want you to have any drinking. I said, I want your hands just like this when you get here tomorrow. He said, oh, I don't do anything like that anyway. And then he had a prayer with me before we left. And I was told after the surgery that he prayed before they started the surgery. I was laid on the table, knocked out. I didn't know anything about it, but he did. Makes all the difference in the world to have godly people in your life. Through the power of prayer and good people like you and the mighty hand of God, I have this testimony. And I give all the praise to God who is always faithful. I've never been left a day in my life. 
even in times when I've been stubborn and hard-headed and wanted to go my own way, God has never turned his back on me. He has been with me every step of the way. And that's why I'm here today. Throughout my life, I have felt the presence of God. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I don't know if you saw the other day, but somebody had put on Facebook the first day of heaven. And it was a painting. And it was a person that had just arrived in heaven. And they had run to Jesus, who had open arms. And they were embraced in a huge hug with two faces, wide-eyed and smiling. I'm going to do that one day. I'll be eternally grateful that God never left me alone. He has placed in my life His angels, both spiritual and earthly, to guide me, to heal me, and to move me forward in my life as well as in my relationship with him and my fellow man. I am here today to offer you proof of all of these things and the opportunity for you to experience the same miracles. I can do this with all sincerity and conviction because I know from personal experience that God is faithful. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this family of believers and for this church and for its leader. And Father, I just pray that now as we face a moment of decision that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to move about this room and that our hearts and minds would be open to you and that whatever decision you would be leading us to make that you would give us the courage to step out and make it, realizing that Jesus never called anyone in private, but always publicly. And Father, help us to stand strong in these times and not to be ashamed, to be as Paul, not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to live it and to preach it and to give the world an example of what you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brother Paul, I'll let you have the room.